Mickey Grace and Rashida Grant Washington and you're listening to the Sold Out Podcast. The Sold Out Podcast is a one-of-a-kind podcast that empowers people to live on purpose. In its rawest form, this podcast captures history in the making by examining what it means to be sold out, to be all in, to feel and respond to what burdens the soul, and to practice vulnerability. Curated by me, Mickey Grace, and Rashida Graham Washington, Sold Out is rooted in the belief that human value is higher than the effort we expend towards our transformation. We are worth it. We are worth it. You are worth it. We want to follow you. We want you to follow us. But in order for you to do that, you got to know where to find us. And you can find Mickey Grace at Mickey, M-I-K-I, L Grace, Mickey L Grace on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me, Rashida, R-E-E-S-H-E-D-A at Rashida N-G-W and at Live Exclamation on Instagram and Twitter. And on Facebook, you can find me at Rashida Graham Washington. We hope to find you there. So when I decided that I wasn't going straight to grad school, I remember feeling slightly embarrassed every time someone asked me, so what's next? Mostly because I didn't have an idea of what I was going to do. I didn't have any job offers and I hadn't applied to any graduate schools. And it wasn't long before I started hiding behind the phrase, I'm going to take a year off. While it did take me a little bit of time to get comfortable in this uncomfortable situation, it wasn't a moment before I owned the fact that I like to read, write, and reflect almost every day of the week. I had interviewed for countless of jobs and been rejected for most of them. And I've had a lot of awkward conversations with people who even after being told a very shorter version of this testimony, still asked me, so what do you want to do? And I decided that I'm not continuing my education until I'm ready, and that's okay. And it wasn't until I did that, it wasn't until I made that decision that I was able to get a good look at my life by design. I took a lot of quiet moments to reflect on my undergraduate experience, my childhood, and my life. I asked myself a lot of questions like, what have I learned throughout the years? And out of everything, what did I like the most? What did I dislike? Then I moved on to some more difficult questions. Well, why did I like this? Or why did I not like that? What really inspires me? What problems do I want to solve? And what would happen if I let my inner voice, my intuition, my God drive my life? With each of these answers, I was able to come to a revelation, a mapped out understanding of who what, when, where, and why, as it pertains to me. And I've been using this map as a guide in my journey to self-actualization. Along the way, I've made a few very necessary stops, getting the opportunity to gauge my skills and my interests, working certain jobs that I thought I would love, when in actuality, I just love the thought of the job. All right. Today we are here to talk about human-centered design, Um, and uh, Mickey's segue is a perfect one in which we get to see the distinction between 
curating, constructing, and designing our lives around other people's expectations or models that existed before we came and really stopping to think about what it is to center our work, our life, and our life's work on what's most important or distinctive for us. Human-centered design is an approach to interactive systems development, the ways that systems work together, and that, that aims to make systems usable and useful, focusing on the user herself and what they need and what their requirements are, and applying systems based on the express felt needs requirements of the user. This approach to doing and being enhances effectiveness and efficiency. It improves human well-being. Users are generally more satisfied with the product because it has been created or crafted with them in mind. And it enhances the possibilities of both accessibility and sustainability. We can certainly hold on to and endure experiences and situations a lot more readily when they are created with us in mind. It also helps us to proactively mitigate harm to health, safety, performance, and existence for human beings when we craft and curate and innovate and design with human beings in mind. So, Mickey, tell me, where are some of the places in your life where you've experienced human-centered design and what impact has that had on you? Hmm. So uh, my first full-time job out of college, um, I was responsible for working with 18 to 24-year-olds. I did that every day. And I, no, let's, let's go back. So before I worked my first full-time job, I worked at a, a small organization in the city of Chicago. And this organization had received some funding to put on some programming for adult learners. And I was there to, like, facilitate that programming. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're, you're an educator. Sure. So you know that when you get this stack of material that you're supposed to put in front of learners um, and figure out how to make it work. Um, so that was what I was tasked with. And then at some point I realized, like, this is not working. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is not working. This is not getting through um, to the folks that I am hoping to, you know, teach. So at that point in my life, I have been spending time with them every day. When you spend time with someone every day, you get a sense of uh, how they how they can be transformed. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, and I think like the issue with me not going to grad school, I came across this concept of human centered design, and I was using it without even knowing that it was a thing. Um, so yeah. And let's and let's get at that. Sure. How is it possible without going to grad school? Right. And without studying human centered design or having someone teach you it as a model. Yeah. How is it that you were able to acquire the skill sets um, necessary to deploy human centered design without studying it? Yeah, I think that um 
human-centered design at the core of it is literally just about being human. Um, so the first step in human-centered design is to empathize, uh, to be with people, to talk to them, to spend time where they spend time. And I think that when you do that, you get a true sense of someone's real plight and not what you may have read about or not what you may have saw on the news. So I think it was just a natural course of being uh, when it's a natural course of being when you're someone who carries empathy um, in your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so yeah, it's it's interesting. I um I wonder to what extent our um, cultural affiliations, our ethnicity, mm-hmm. our gender and race inform our natural proclivity toward human-centered design, mm-hmm. right? Like when you come from black culture where community has always been an embedded priority and where interconnectedness and intersectionality has been kind of... Um, thread it into the DNA of the culture mm-hmm. um, when you uh, even in the black church I would say historically if you think about the lessons people taught in Sunday school it was always about you know make sure you have enough for everybody or um, whatever you have you can share some of it with somebody else or did you think about how that was going to make her feel mm-hmm. um, that was a question I got all the time um, from even from my mother between my siblings Mm -hmm. like yeah that benefited you but did you think about how it it was going to impact your your sister yeah that's different for me though yeah because um I don't think I can't say that my childhood was full of empathy yeah no (laughs) for me Mm -hmm. I don't know um I think my my ability to empathize with people Mm -hmm. comes from the desire to have to want people to empathize with me and to have more of it in the world yeah 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. because I, I never really had an example of someone empathizing with me like I was I had a lot of bad behavioral issues when I was a kid so Mm -hmm. people weren't trying to empathize with me yeah right I was in trouble yeah (laughs) all the time and you know I think about it like um there's this song by this guy named Brent Fayaz, mm-hmm. and it's called Home. And um, in the song, he's like, in, in the beginning of the song, you can hear his mother coming in. The dog is barking. You could tell she just got off work. She's tired. And she starts hollering like, come downstairs. What are you doing? You got all Fs on your report card. What is going on with you? Mm-hmm. And he starts singing, and he says, um, you know, um, I remember being scared to come home because mm-hmm. my mother found out I did wrong. And then he says, um, why won't you hold me? Mm-hmm. Sweet, dark, and holy. And in that moment, I think about how um, as a child, right, as children who maybe have behavioral issues or as children who uh, show out at school or wherever they are, and it immediately is, um, the, the immediate response to it isn't always empathy and from that song when he was like well why won't you hold me it made me think about it like dang nobody ever thought to think maybe it's something wrong with her you know like maybe it's something maybe 
something's going on. Yeah. You know, I'm actually saying the same thing you're saying, yeah. that it wasn't from a place of empathy that I learned human-centered design. Mm -hmm. It was from these questions I got, like, why didn't you think about this other person? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, okay, thinking about another person. How does that work? What does that mean? And what does it mean to have it be... Because people would say it to me, but not necessarily because they were always exhibiting it themselves, right. but because they expected it to be exhibited on behalf of them mm. or behalf of someone else, right? right? And so when I got to undergrad, um, <clears throat> I joined a sorority, the greatest sorority on the planet, Next. the Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. That's another episode for Girl, another day. Right after the Deltas, okay? <laughs> right after the Deltas, y'all can be the best. That'll be episode 10. Mickey and I will duke it out, Delta, aka. <laughs> Between the two, we holding it down. I think it's safe to say. Right. Um, but I learned a lot um, from being in relationship with other women on campus mm -hmm. who were like, Rashida, you know, this is how that impacted someone else or or did you think about the ramifications or the long-term fallout of um, this decision yeah and I and then I got curious not because a model had been set for me but it's like wow what it what would it be like to live your life from that space and what would the world be like if everybody lived their lives from that space mm -hmm. of this I'm going to first think about humanity and how the way I show up in the world impacts humanity. So what would you say is at the core is the difference between like human-centered design and asset-based community development? Yeah, I don't think there is much difference. Just another name? Um, I think, well, you know, you know my whole spiel on how people have to codify things in order to monetize them. Right. And so in the design world, this is the language of asset-based community development in the design world, right? It, it, it just is. It's, 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 the, it's the way that people in the design world have codified right. this way of being. In the community development world, it's called asset-based community development. That's the way that they've codified this way of being in the community development world, right? Um... And so I'm, I'm thankful for it because we can replicate that which has been framed and that which we have language for. But what I do want to consider is when I, when I encounter asset-based community development for the first time, my struggle with it was that it didn't include equity. Mm -hmm. And so as we think about asset-based community development, if assets are not evenly or justly distributed then we're, we're our base that we're starting from with our assets is not the same or even similar across the board mm -hmm. same case with human-centered design I think the the model itself beginning with humanity in mind and building out based on the express felt needs of hu of the humanity you're responding to I love it I think it's dope I think where my challenge is, is when we say humanity, who do we mean? Mm -hmm. um, when we live in a world where some people are not even considered human, haven't been considered human historically, 
or when we live in a world where we're still trying to figure out whose lives matter, then I think we have to be explicit when we say human-centered design, we can't make the general assumption that when we're designing, we have all of humanity in mind. That hum human-centered design goes wrong when, when we say human-centered, we are really privileging a particular people group as humanity. Mm -hmm. um, and if we go with a dominant culture way of thinking about things, um, a historically privileged cultured way of thinking about things if we lean into whiteness as the um, majority culture and as such the majority way of being then we will leave out whole sects of humanity and design things that are really not for those people groups and really don't better their lives or their experience in any way because we haven't taken them into consideration. Yeah, I think that that is true when you think about uh, people or organizations or companies or institutions that are building things for the larger, right? Like, mm -hmm. like for example, when I use human-centered design, I, I'm not upset at the term because I know that I am designing for a very particular population, right? Right. right. Um, so it's not like I'm using the word human to think about every single body. I'm using the word human to think about this particular population or mm -hmm. community of humans that um, I'm trying to serve or I'm serving with. And I think that um, it makes me wonder about maybe if it's like, if it's not even human-centered design as much as it is experience-centered mm -hmm. design, uh, because you really, humans are made up of their experiences, mm -hmm. right? Um, and how they identify with certain things and how they identify with themselves, how they experience themselves. Sure. Um, so I did want to say that. And then another thing I wanted to say was I wanted you to take us back to that thought around asset-based commu asset community development mm -hmm, and equity. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so if we got a community um, that has assets that are not necessarily um, distributed evenly or however we want to mm -hmm. say it, um, but asset-based community development means to, t to look at what the community already has there, right? The gifts, yes. the talents, the whatever that yes. they already have there. But not to the exclusion of the history um, and experiences that absolutely also create lack. So it's not a binary where you only look at what is there. Mm -hmm. You look first at what is there, recognizing that the first priority of assets are human ones. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the greatest asset you're going to have in any community are the people who are there mm -hmm. and the stories they tell and the expressions of what they prioritize and value. Mm -hmm. That's the first line of asset. Um, but I think we have to be careful with asset based community development because in places where um, colonized mindsets and patriarchal models are still in place. Um, we, 
they can come into a community and say, everything here is wonderful and great and beautiful, so we don't have to do anything. We don't have to redistribute power. We don't have to redistribute wealth. We're just going to have parties and celebrate and develop relationships, and we're going to be friends. But if you then get to leave that experience and go to your beach house in Michigan, and these people that are in this community, their porches are falling apart. It's not that there are not assets there, but we also need to look at economic development and equity. And we can't look at those things as being at war with each other or in a polarizing way. We have to hold the whole story um, and hold it with intentionality. Mm -hmm. um, so in that, I, I, I push back a little bit on falling too deeply in love with only looking at the beautiful things. I also struggle, though, because it is a tension to be managed. I struggle with people from outside of my community coming into my community and only seeing what's broken or horrible or violent mm -hmm. about it. You know, Chicago gets a really bad rap all the time. You know, I travel all over the country, sometimes other parts of the world. When I say I'm from Chicago, all they want to talk about is gun violence. Right. Um, and so we have to hold that tension well, that all of that is true and accurate and part of the narrative and not overhold one bit of it more than the other part. So when you think about the um, different pieces of human-centered design or design thinking, right? Mm -hmm. You got empathize, define, ideate, prototype, and test. Mm -hmm. um, we already dug a little bit into empathize. So out of the others, uh, where do you see the value? I see a lot of value in all those pieces. You, of course, ideation is my favorite because that's it's part of my composition. I'm always like, and what else? Mm -hmm. And what else? Um, but in terms of defining... That I get really curious about, especially when we're talking about these models, mm -hmm. because if human-centered design was codified by white men, and then definition, defining is a part of the codification of human-centered design, then I get nervous about who gets to do the defining. That unless the tables where these conversations are happening are diverse and intersectional and intergenerational, um, then we have the, the typical power players, the typical mm -hmm. power holders being the ones doing the defining. So when I'm looking at human-centered design, like you said, Mickey, you made a really amazing distinction. That, and we're live today at Live Cafe. Um, so I, I probably should have said that sooner. But we're, we're live, and so if you hear the ambient sound in the background, it's all the um, pinky and brains of the world um, working on these issues that we're talking about mm -hmm. on Sold Out. And I bring that up because when I'm designing an experience for the cafe, I know who my people group is. Mm -hmm. I know it's going to be diverse. I know that it will be um, primarily middle, middle class, but not only middle, middle class, right? So I can take those sub-demographics and take them into consideration quite easily because I know what they are. Mm -hmm. And then I can curate an experience based on what I already know. Yeah. Here is where the challenge comes. When we're developing a policy around healthcare systems in Chicago, and we, everybody at the table is from the north side of the city and all of the people from the north side of the city who are at the table are white and privileged and um, 
live in a tax bracket above the people the policy is for, now when we do human-centered design, which humans are they centering? Right. Um, and by default, their proclivity is going to be to center people who are homogeneous to their life experience. Mm -hmm. So the design itself, I love the model. I love the framework. But any framework is only going to be as useful as its user's capacity to use it. And that's why we still, even when we get these great design models like human-centered design, which I'm like, yes, this is in line with asset-based community development, economic development, and equity. We finally have something that centers something other than money, right? right. Or um, innovation for the sake of it. You know, we love to be expansive for the sake of it. Mm -hmm. But if we have these models and we still haven't diversified the people around the model, then we can have a wonderful model and still use it in ways that continue to oppress and marginalize people groups. So I think out of all of the... Um, Steps in this process. My favorite step is test, mm -hmm. um, and I really like test because uh, when you're able to put something out and watch it work uh, or watch it not work, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's kind of like um, revelatory. Um, I think the second time in human-centered design, it's always the better time. Um, because now you've actually now we've actually learned something. Um, we've learned how uh, the our users agree with this or don't agree with this. Sure. So I used to, um, and sometimes I still play around with it, uh, like prototyping mobile apps. Yeah. And my favorite, favorite, favorite part of it is like letting people use the app and then watching over their shoulder mm -hmm. to see where they clicked or where they don't click. Yeah. Um, and it just helps me, right, know where I failed, right? Or, or not even failed, but, like, where, where I've made assumptions. Totally. Where I've made assumptions about someone and how they experience a thing. And I think the overarching process of it helps you to be a better person who doesn't make assumptions about people. And that's what I was about to say. I think human-centered design is great. In, in that it challenges the leader, right? right? It, your willingness to integrate human-centered design says something about the kind of leader you are because you know going into the implementation that there will be a feedback loop. Yeah. And we can't make the assumption that all leaders welcome a feedback loop. But if you're choosing human-centered design, you are looking forward to, like you said, I anticipate looking over their shoulder to see, like, what are they going to say about it? What do they love about it? What are they going to give back to me that I'm going to be like, oh, my goodness, I totally missed that. Yeah. You have to be the kind of leader, table setter, curator who desires that kind of feedback and response. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it, it, it really does tell us something about the kind of leaders we have, um, depending upon whether or not they're willing to integrate human-centered design into their processes. Yeah, and um, I think that... Uh I think that when we consider human-centered design, it is a matter of uh, giving yourself permission to say, 
to be honest with yourself about whether or not you really want to create something that helps people yeah (laughs) or if you want to create something that helps yourself so I have had like I've I've had opportunities to work in some very innovative spaces with some of the most brilliant people Mm -hmm. and I had come to the revelation that in a world where we can create anything we have to be mindful of what's worth creating at all. Yeah. Um, because we'll just like like I went to this um this event called Introduction to the Startup Tech Community in Chicago, mm-hmm. and this guy was talking about how he used to work in Silicon Valley, and now he works in Chicago, and he loves working in Chicago on the tech scene so much more because in Silicon Valley, people are just creating for the sake of creating. Yes. They're just innovating because they can do it. Um, here in Chicago, people are more um, mindful of using technology and user experience design and their services and products to really have an impact on issues that we are facing to solve stuff yeah um and so yeah i think it's it there's grounds for it to be used all willy-nilly and there's grounds for it to be used in a very transformational way Mm -hmm. um it just depends on the people using it yeah for sure and And isn't that where we always land as we come to the end of this episode? We can have all the models in the world. In fact, there are so many that you and I are like, that's part of our manifesto. We're sold out on some of these old models and we just need new models. And in some ways, that's true. Mm -hmm. And in other ways, sometimes I wonder if we have models that are just fine And we need to get curious about how we're implementing them as human beings. That any model we create, we could create all new frameworks and all new models. But if we're not examining our objectives for use, and if we're not examining our intentionality around how we deploy models, who we invite into the process, who we center Mm -hmm. in how we implement, then we'll have a bunch of models and still we won't have the transformation we're looking for. This is sold out. We are sold out. If you're looking for uh, other ways to consider this pretty heady topic, um, I would encourage you to go to Dev Explains on YouTube and um, click on the um, video on human-centered design. This sister does a really good job of unpacking the way the human-centered design works. And we hope that this is one model of many that you'll hear about on Sold Out that you might consider analyzing in comparison to other design frameworks and that you might even practice in your own context. We thank you so much for listening. Mm